just uh, to set up the sermon just a little bit, every sermon I preach gets preached to myself first, but most of the time in my preaching, it's what is the next passage? How does it speak to my heart? How is it going to speak to the people? Uh, the, the last sermon I preached before I went to Israel and this one are a little bit different in that these are studies that I did for my own good first. That's, that's the first benefit. And so I'm preaching to you having preached to myself first. And I, I needed uh, the passage of Scripture. So if you'll turn to Psalm 16. I want to start by asking a question. Um, yeah, this remote's kind of funky right now. So... Yeah, um, no, it wasn't your fault. So um, I want to start by asking a question. For the Christian, is joy automatic? The reason I ask that is last time we learned that joy was a gift of God at salvation. You know, uh, the, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Love and then joy, right? Does that mean that once we are saved, joy is automatic endowment that we have in this life and the life to come? My answer to that question is no and yes. No, joy is not automatic in this present life, but it is automatic in the everlasting life to come. In other words, what I want to draw from the past today is that joy is conditional for the Christian. And if it is conditional, then if you're like me, you want to know what conditions create joy, don't you? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in Psalm 16. If you'll stand with me, we will read Psalm 16 together. This is David. It says, Amictam of David. Uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Let, I'm sorry, I misread it. That's the second time this morning I misread it. Let me start over. Verse number eight. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Look at those benefits. You see those benefits? Next verse. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make me known, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, uh, 
this passage of scripture has been uh, meat for my soul. It has been very instructive. It's been corrective. It's been an encouragement. There's been so much here. There is no way for me to communicate the depth of all the truths that are contained in this verse. And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit to do what I cannot. And that is communicate into hearts and minds the unfathomable riches of God's grace and how that in this we can obtain joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm going to just kind of walk verse by verse through this. That's the only way I know how to do this uh, passage of Scripture, just walk verse by verse. And we start off in verse number one. David begins the psalm with a, a petition and then a reason for his petition. He, his petition is, preserve me, O God. And immediately he follows with a reason. For in you I take refuge. Okay. Um, there we go. Okay. Um, so immediately we have a petition and a re, uh, reason. Preserve me, O God. Why? Why does he have the right to say, preserve me, O God? Why does he have the right to ask that from God? The answer, because you are my supreme refuge. Here we have a principle that I want you to, to really catch. As best we know, at this point in this passage of Scripture, David is running from King Saul. Now, David is the anointed king. And as anointed king, future king, he spent years and years running from Saul. Now, if this is true, then there are two things going on with David. And they're important for all of us. Number one, David is using means to get away from Saul. In other words, he's using cunning and he's hiding and he's running and he's doing all those physical things that he needs to do to preserve his life and get away from Saul. But at the same time, and here's the important part, he knows that these things are not his refuge but rather God is his true refuge. And God is the supreme refuge no matter what he does. We need to keep these things in mind as we go through this. Um, he says, preserve me, O God. And ultimately, God will preserve him. And what we see down through Christian history is that many of God's faithful servants have faced mortal danger. We could go through a long list but I just want to highlight one person, and his name is William Tyndale. You ever heard of him? William Tyndale was, uh, he was the person who created the most endearing translation of Scripture that, into English that we have. And he did it at the cost of his life. William Tyndale was a gifted linguist. He spoke seven languages. He was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And he studied the use of the English language through the famous scholar Erasmus. I don't know if you've ever heard of Erasmus. Uh, and the study was rigorous. There was a man who came a couple decades after him who also studied language under the, uh, the, the study course of Erasmus. 
you may have heard of him. His name is William Shakespeare. They studied the same course of language. As a matter of fact, I found this interesting. One of the assignments that Erasmus gave students in the, in the primer that he, primer that he created was come up with no less than 150 ways to say, thank you very much, I enjoyed your letter. Can you imagine how, how rigorous that course of study has to be? How much use of language you learn? And because of that, we our language today is full of dozens and probably hundreds of phrases that came from William Shakespeare and um, William Tyndale. Matter of fact, much of the most endearing phrases from the King James Bible came from William Tyndale. For example, let there be light. That's William Tyndale. Am I my brother's keeper? William Tyndale. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. William Tyndale. How about this one? This is... This is one that people say that have no reference to the Bible whatsoever. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. These are all William Tyndale. As a matter of fact, the majority of the King James Bible is basically William Tyndale's translation of the Greek and the Hebrew. I don't know if you knew that or not. This is the impact of this man. England passed a law that a person could be burned at the stake just for possessing and reading a copy of the Bible in English. England at this time was Catholic, and they, they said that all the Bible needs to be read in Latin. Tyndale had been translating the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament into English, and his life was in danger. One of his friends lost his life, and so he escaped London in 1524, spent the last 12 years of his life as a fugitive running for his life. He fled to Germany, had to run for his life in Germany, went to Netherlands, was there for a while, went back to Germany. And he wrote about his sufferings. And his sufferings having to do with the fact that he translated the Bible into English. He wrote of his pains, poverty, exile, abandonment by friends, hunger, thirst, cold, other hardships. One of his last letters that he ever wrote to the king, uh, he, he wrote and said, May you send my cap because the cold in this dungeon is about to kill me. He had no comfort whatsoever in prison. Finally, he was betrayed by a friend and condemned to death. On October 6th, 1536, he was tied to a stake. The executioner strangled him and then he was burned. All for giving us the precious Word of God. Now, why did he do this? If you read William Tyndale's letters, he did it because Christ was his supreme treasure. And that brings me to the second point that we see in, in verse number two. In verse number two, David makes another declaration. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He is telling God that God is my supreme treasure. It's a very fascinating language. When he says, I have no good apart from you, 
he is, he is uh, saying something interesting, but I want you to see what the whole verse is saying by, put your finger here and turn back to uh, Psalms 12. Turn to Psalms 12. I want us to look at verse number four. Psalm 12 is speaking about the wicked. What does the wicked say? The wicked asks this question in verse number four, says, who is master over us? Who is master over us? Now that word master is the word Adon, where we get the word Adonai, Lord. So they're in essence saying, who is Lord over us? And this is not a genuine question. This is rather an assertion that no one is Lord over us. So the implied answer is, who is Lord over us? No one is Lord over us. In their minds, they have no Lord. But look at David. Turn back over to Psalm 16:2. He's the exact opposite. He says, you are my Lord. He, he, as a matter of fact, the way he says it, uh, he says, I say to the Lord Yahweh, you are my Lord Adonai. And so he says, you are my Lord. And then he says, I have no good apart from you. Now that, that translation, that's translating the meaning of the verse. You know what the actual meaning or the actual uh, Hebrew is? The Hebrew here is, it says, my good things are not over you. My good things are not over you. In other words, David is saying, of all the good things in the world, there is nothing in this world that I will exalt over you, Lord. Can you say that? Can you say that, God, my life is full of good things, but in reality, you and you alone are my supreme treasure. That's what David is saying here. God is his treasure. And then he says that God is his treasure in a different way in verse number three. In verse number three, because God is his supreme treasure, those who love God gives him the most pleasure. Look at, look at the verse. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Why do we delight in other Christians? We delight in other Christians because we have a shared commitment to the Lord, don't we? We have a, a shared love for God. We have a, a shared um, treasure in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we treasure them. Humans are made to find a bond with people who have similar circumstances and similar interests. When I was flying back from, from Israel on Thursday night, I sat next to a guy from uh, near Copenhagen, Denmark. And um, his daughter was with him. His other kids were on the airplane somewhere. And as we began talking, uh, it came out that he was, a, he was fire chief in his town in, in um, Denmark. And some of you know I was fire chief in my, the town I came from in Wisconsin. We had that shared bond. Literally the whole flight, we talked about firefighter stuff. It was really interesting. It was one of those things he would say, in Denmark, you would not believe, and he would go in to describe things, and I said, it was, it's just the same in the United States. And I would say something about the United States, and he'd say, yep, same way it is in Denmark. And it was just this bond that was created because we had a similar interest. And yet, none of those interests, none of them 
create the bond and delight that we have when our treasure is Jesus Christ. David expresses something in verse number two. He expresses a love for God in verse number two. And that love for God in verse number three translates into a love for other believers. Because we love God, we appreciate those who honor God. We delight in those who share our ultimate commitment. And our ultimate commitment determines what we value, what we prioritize, what we seek to promote, and what we seek to discourage. And because those are the same as believers, then we have a common bond with them. Notice something else. Now he states the same truth negatively in verse number four. In verse number four, David states how much God is his treasure by saying the same truth on the other side. He says this, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names. Simply stated, I can't state it any simpler than this, but to turn from the God who provides lasting satisfaction to any other pursuit or any other God of this world in the end leads only to sorrow. Jeremiah stated that. We looked at this last time I was here preaching when he said that what, what is the natural state of people? They hew out for themselves cisterns, leaky cisterns full of brackish water that eventually dissipates and leads only to sorrow. And that's what every pursuit other than Jesus Christ does for you. It leaves you sick, sorrowful, and ultimately unfulfilled. Now he goes from the negative to the positive. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, these are the climatic restatement that are so very important. Look at what he says. The Lord is my chosen portion and in my cup you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In other words, why would anyone choose to pursue God above all the treasures of this world? Why? Why would anyone choose to live this way? And why make God a supreme refuge and not 401ks, good jobs, social connections, and all that? The reason is God is my supreme treasure. God is my chosen portion in my cup. Let me paint a picture for you. You know what the picture is? The picture is of a huge banquet with all kinds of delights. Now, when we were in Israel, the place that we were staying, uh, most of our meals were cafeteria style. But the day that we were in Jerusalem, when we walked, the day in Jerusalem, you do a lot of walking. We came back, I was hungry. We got there, that was the evening of Shabbat, and so they put four tables together and created one giant banquet table for our little group of people that was there and was full of food, vegetables and different delights. And so we start scooping out, we're grabbing bread, and we're getting vegetables, we're getting all these things, and while we're doing that, all of a sudden they bring out salmon, and then they come out a little bit later, with chicken and we're piling our plates and my plate was completely full and I realized that was a mistake because then they brought the chosen portion 
You know what that was? Two giant tenderloins, I think they were, tenderloins, crusty on the outside and red and tender on the inside. One was medium rare, one was medium. You could almost cut it with your fork. It was so tender. The chosen portion. And what David said is, of all the delights in the world, God is my chosen portion. I desire Him more than anything. Take the most sumptuous meal with the finest foods and wine, and David treasured God as that finest portion. And then he acknowledged something that he acknowledged in verse number 2, and that is the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord, this is verse number 5, by the way, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. And here's the, the claim of God's sovereignty on his life. You hold my lot. You hold my lot. In other words, you know what lots are, right? It's not your property lot. They cast lots. You hold my lot. In other words, when the dice are rolled, when the straws are drawn, when the wheel is turned, whatever happens to us comes directly from the hand of God. God holds my lot. God decides it. God rules over it. God is my sovereign. And I'm glad to have it so. Right? Everything that comes into your life, whether you view it as bad or good, came directly from the hand of God. All of it. And you know what that means? Don't miss this. This is so important. It means that I don't have to just stoically bear it, grin and bear it, but rather I can exult in it. Remember what David is doing. David is running for his life. And yet in it, he says, you are my chosen portion. You hold my lot. God, I am running for my life because that is what you sovereignly chose the course of my life at this time. But I'm going to have joy. And the key to having joy is understanding that whatever comes from you or comes to you comes from the hand of God. Therefore, you can have joy and rejoice in it because God does it for your good and for his glory. And ultimately, in heaven, we reap the rewards of honoring him in it. Do you believe that? But if you're like me, sometimes joy is a fight, isn't it? Joy is a fight. It is natural when you get bad news to be rocked back on your heels, sometimes dropped to your knees by difficult news. But the Christian who loves God puts our mind on Christ, meditates on Scripture, rehearses Bible truths, and ultimately, joy breaks through. But it's hard. It doesn't make it easy. And look at something else in verse number 6. Because, because the Lord is His chosen portion and is sovereign and holds His lot, this is what He declares. Ready? Now remember, this is a man running for his life. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is talking about the, the lines of their inheritance, the, the boundary markers. I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord made the world. To gain him is to gain the one who controls everything, the inventor of every pleasure, the insurer of all safety, the definer of right and wrong, and the rewarder of those who seek him. But conversely, to lose him, to lose Christ, even if in return you gain the whole world, is to lose everything. Let me say it one more time. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your life and you gain the whole world and you're richer than Bill Gates and Elon Musk and you have everything going for you in, your li- in this life, you, dear person, have lost everything because you have lost Christ and your destiny for all of eternity is not His pleasures, but rather His wrath. Anyone seeking pleasure, joy, satisfaction, happiness, they find it by first of all seeking the Lord. Now how do we apply this? I'm not going to go in depth. I'm just going to make one statement. It does not matter what your present circumstances are. Just remember, if you have gained Christ, you have a beautiful inheritance. That's it. I'm looking at people who have very difficult circumstances. I know some of your situations personally, and it just it's gut-wrenching, and it's hard. But just remember, you have Christ, so therefore you have everything. There's another thing that David confesses in verse number 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. This is a declaration that not only is Christ his treasure, God is his refuge, his beautiful inheritance, but the Lord is his counselor. How did the Lord counsel him? And how does the Lord counsel us? How does he do this? He does it through his word. It was David who said these words. Your testimonies, yeah, they're good for me. Is that what he said? Your testimonies, they're okay. Their testimony, they're very instructive. No, this is not. David uses the language of, of, of pleasure and emotional, positive emotions. He says, your testimonies, the way that you have worked in history, what's written down in your word, that's my delight. And I take these things that I delight and I use them for the course of my life. They're my counselor. They show me how to act. They show me what to value. They show me what to move away from. And so Christ is not our treasure in an abstract way. Christ reveals his all-satisfying beauty, his value to us in words, in teaching, in counsel, in word pictures, in beautiful thing, uh, things that he says. And sometimes they even come to us at night when our thoughts are darker wondering. No wonderful. This is David running for his life. Now, look at verse number one. 
because I'm going to tie it to something else. He says, preserve me, O Lord. Right? Preserve me, O God. That's a petition. In verse number 8, it becomes a declaration. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So now it's a declaration. Is it possible for a Christian to be shaken? Yes or no? It is. It is possible for a a Christian to be shaken. However, circumstances and events will knock you down. They'll make you feel like you're groping in in the dark. And so the answer is yes. But on the other hand, is it possible to experience the same events and be shaken, but get right back up and be absolutely certain and not be moved? And the answer to that is yes. Because things come our way that sometimes are bewildering, Sometimes they're so very hurtful. Sometimes the pain is crushing. And yet, and they knock you down, don't they? They knock you down. But then you, you remember what God said in His Word. You see His faithfulness. You see how He's dealt with saints in the past. And you see His mercy and kindness in saving you. And that strengthens you and you get back up and say, God, things are hard, but I will not be shaken because this is from your hand, and I know you love me. Isn't that so true? All of life is lived before God. Therefore, we need to live in fear of the Lord. We need to live a life of worship. Frankly, the presence of God is a reward in itself. But but. His presence demands virtue. And it, um, it demands holiness. And the only way that we get virtue and holiness is it's given to us through the Son of, Son of God, isn't it? At the moment of salvation, we exchange our unrighteous garments for His righteous garments. We exchange our sinfulness for His perfection. And God places on us the righteousness of Christ And when that happens, dear believer, we have freedom from guilt. We have uh, freedom from remorse. We have freedom from fear of being found out because God already knows everything about us. And, And lastly, and not least, we have freedom from the fear of eternal condemnation. And it all happens through Jesus Christ. And David is building up a series of declarations. God is his refuge. God is his treasure. God is his inheritance. God is his counselor. And what does all this mean? Verse number nine, therefore. Now, what does the word therefore mean? Therefore means that there is a result coming. What do all these things result in? If God is all of these things to you, if God is all these things, even when circumstances are hard, and difficult, and tough, what is the result? Look at what he says in verse number 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My, My whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure. When God is your refuge, when God is your treasure, when God is your inheritance and counselor, the result is that you can have a glad heart and all of you rejoices in Him. 
And we finally get to the, the danger that he's facing here. He said, preserve me in verse number one, but we don't know what he's asking to be preserved from. Verse number nine, we know what he's being, what the preservation is, my flesh. In other words, my life dwells secure. His life is in danger. And so in danger, he was was flesh and blood. He was subject to the same fears and weaknesses that we are. And notice the pattern. He cries out to God. Then he rehearses everything that God has done for him. And the result is confidence and joy. This is a consistent pattern in the, the lament psalms. The lament psalms start out with a petition or starts out with a mourning. Then right in the middle, rehearsing everything that God has done for them. And in the end, there's a confidence and joy in the Lord over and over and over. And that's a pattern of the Christian life. Verse number 10. I'm going to pass over this very quickly and just make a quick comment about it. Verse number 10 is quoted by Peter in uh, his famous sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, David has confidence that, that he is not going to die, first of all. But then he says, Or let my, your Holy One see corruption. This is a prophecy about um, Jesus Christ. And I'll just say this. Because God has been his portion here, his safest refuge, his treasure, his Lord, his counselor, his confidence is unshaken because um, God will be all of this for him forever. Let's go to verse number 11. I want to finish up. David makes three confident statements in verse number 11. Let's read it. You make known to me the path of life. There's one. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Two. Three. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. What are these statements? Number one, God makes salvation known. It is God who makes salvation known. You make known to me the path of life. God helped David escape danger, physical danger. But spiritually, God shows us the path of life. Do you realize that God could have created the world and been the God of the deists? He just wound everything up and then let it go. And we could, thousands of years of human history could go by and no one know that there's a God. He could have done it that way. But instead, God created the earth and then he made himself known to mankind. And not only did he make himself known to mankind, he also made the, the, the way of salvation known. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Of all the people living in the world, those who find the path of life are very few. If you have found the path of life and you know Jesus Christ, you ought to rejoice in that. You're one of the few. Those are Jesus' words. The result of this is the next phrase, verse number 11, fullness of joy. That's the result. When we draw our last breath on earth, we will be ushered into the heavenly presence of God. Heaven is described as a place of joy. And why is it a place of joy? Because that's where, Je- that's where God is. You read Revelation 4 and 5, read Isaiah 6, 
Read Ezekiel, the latter half of Ezekiel, and what do you find out? You see that there is God on His throne, Jesus Christ sitting in His right hand, and what is going on all around? There's singing and joy and glorification. And Jesus over and over says, the heaven is like a wedding banquet. It's, it's the greatest celebration you could ever have. And why is that? Because you are with God. Faith has become sight. But there's another promise that Jesus left us that we can have joy here and now. And you know what that promise is? He said at the end of his great commission, and lo, I am with you always. I am with you always to the ends of the earth. How is he with us now? He sent the other comforter, another of the same kind called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives within you, comforting you and giving you joy because Jesus' presence is with you right now, day by day by day. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And then finally, God gives eternal pleasure and delight. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Last time, um, we read Psalm 36.8. Turn there, because this is the last verse I'll have you turn to. Psalm 36.8. I read this verse to you in my last sermon. I want to rehearse it because it's such a wonderful promise. He said this. The psalmist said, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink of what? The river, the river of delights. To know Christ is to know a river of delights. To know Christ is to drink eternally from the fountain of life. It's to have your thirst quenched. It's to have your hunger satisfied. It's to have your joy made complete. That's knowing Jesus Christ. Everything in this life that's good is just a hint of the glory to come. I'm going to close with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards is caricatured because of his most famous sermon. Everybody knows his most famous sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the only thing we know about Jonathan Edwards. And he, he was dressed in black. That's what everybody thinks. One author said this. Listen to what he said. He said, identifying Jonathan Edwards with sinners in the hands of an angry God is like identifying Jesus with the woes against Chorazim and Bethsaida. This is a fraction of the whole and not the main achievement. And that is true of Jonathan Edwards. His main achievement was describing the glories of heaven, describing the love of God, the mercy of God, the chesed, the loving kindness of God, Jonathan Edwards wrote more about heaven and love and joy than he did about hell and punishment and torment and all that other stuff. But that's not how we know him. Look at his meditation. This is what he said about heaven. He said, the enjoyment of God only is only, I'm sorry, let me start over. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness that satisfies. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. 
God is the substance. These are scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Dear believer, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now. Your life may be full of happiness. Your life may be full of sorrow and hardship. But I want you to remember, God is the ocean of delights. He's the river of delights. And at His presence, there is fullness of joy. And so how do you receive joy? Joy is conditioned. Conditional is conditioned on the fact that you make Him your treasure. You make Him your refuge. You make Him your counselor. He's your inheritance. And when you do that, yes, life is hard. Yes, it knocks you back on your heels. But ultimately, you get right back up because you're looking at Christ and He's your joy. Do you have that joy? Lord, we thank You for this, the Psalm 16. As I said, this has been my, my meat. It's been my meditation for weeks now. I didn't do it any kind of justice at all, Lord. But I just pray that you will encourage people. There are people here who are in Christ who probably need a gentle correction because they are finding their refuge in other places. They're finding their delight elsewhere. I pray that you will bring them back. There are other people, Lord, who may have just this morning or last night or the day before have experienced something that has them bewildered, has them back on their heels or on their knees, I pray that they will rehearse all your goodness and kindness and that you will give them everlasting joy, full of joy, fullness of joy, Lord. And I just pray, I just pray, Lord, that we'll draw our strength from Christ. In his name we pray, amen.